All right, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to um, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible and would like to use one of our red ones in the seats in front of you, 2 Samuel, chapter 11, is on page 149. 149. Well, thanks again for joining us this morning. We're continuing our study in the life of David, and we, we've reached this um, most infamous passage in the life of David, um, a story of David and Bathsheba. Before we get to the story, I want to share three other stories real briefly. Um, in 2016, during the presidential election, uh, you, you may remember, that seems like so long ago, but it was just six years ago, um, there was a video that I found during the, the campaign, um, and, and in this video I learned a word, and the word is this, and it's hard to pronounce, it's a German word. Uh, schadenfreude. Have you heard that word before, schadenfreude? The word schadenfreude is a, is a, it's a German word that expresses some delight and joy in seeing your opponent fail. So this video was talking about both Trump and Clinton and how sort of American pop culture has taken delight in their opponent candidate failing. In, in some way, whether that was a, a mistake that they, you know, said something wrong during a debate or some, you know, um, something was uncovered in their past. So schadenfreude, taking delight in your opponent's failure. That was a new word. And, and I I've, have found myself many times experiencing schadenfreude. Maybe you have too. Um, so that's the first story. Second story, um, just a handful of years ago, um, Ravi Zacharias passed away. Now, he was this worldwide Christian leader, I mean, a missionary, an author, a pastor, and his, his talks, his apologetics, his books uh, made an impact in my own life, maybe in your life, and, and um, can be really attributed to the thousands and thousands of men and women coming to know Jesus. He, he built an empire around his ministry. And then he passed away, and it was uncovered that he was duplicitous with his life, and that there were um, um, atrocious things that he did, an abuse of power towards women in particular. And, and that was heartbreaking to hear. I mean, it was disappointing. It was shameful to, to think that this was possible for him. Maybe you had a similar reaction. Last story. Uh, when Eleanor was born just eight weeks ago, we were in the hospital. Uh, we were in the recovery room afterward. And, you know, when, when you have a baby, they keep you in the recovery room for a few days to monitor mom and baby, make sure everyone's okay. And, and we, were, we were good. And this being our third child, we just wanted to get home. Uh, we wanted to just go home and get back to normal life. We had to stay there for a couple days. And good thing I brought my iPad because we had a lot of spare time to watch shows. And so we found this three-part documentary series on 
um, the church Hillsong. We, we sing some Hillsong songs here. You've, you for sure have sung them yourself. This um, church out of Australia has become this global, worldwide movement of the gospel. And this documentary was looking at um, the CEO, Brian Houston, and then in particular, the campus pastor of the New York branch of Hillsong. And it followed his rise to fame and then his admission of or being found out of adultery and um, corruption and abuse of power. And, and now both he and the CEO have now resigned from the church in the last year. We can respond a lot of ways to leaders failing. I was fascinated by that story. I didn't have a lot of stakes in the game, so I wasn't disappointed. And I didn't really take joy out of it because it was hard to watch, but I was fascinated by it. We can respond in a number of ways to, to leaders failing, whether that is political leader or Christian leader or a business leader or even a leader in your community. We can respond a lot of ways. We can take delight in it. We can be brokenhearted by it. We can even be fascinated by it. But one response that we shouldn't ever have one reason, if we truly understood what is inside of every human being, what we're, uh, our, our, our state of mind is, one response that we should never have when we see a, a leader fail is shocked. We should never be shocked by it. We're going to look at the story of David's failure. And, and from looking at David's failure, we're going to look inward and examine our own hearts. And my prayer is that we'd walk away feeling like, I mean, we, we should never be shocked when we see this failure in ourselves and in others. Let's look at the story of David and Bathsheba. It's a long story. We're going to look actually um, beyond chapter 11 and, and into the beginning of chapter 12. So, Bear with me as we read this story. It's pretty long. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and the besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and uh, one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. She sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? 
Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. That's a tense. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him. He ate at his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, set Uriah on the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, uh, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerub, uh, Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you uh, go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had said him to tell. The messenger said to David, the man the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate, and the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he had brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests that he would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he has had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and that it pierces um, into our heart between the marrow and bone. And so we pray 
Spirit, would you speak to us this morning and lead us to the grace we have in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. I've got two points today, and if you want to follow along in your bulletin, I've actually got some fill-in-the-blanks for you to pay attention and, and write those in for you. But our two points this morning are these, the seeds of sin and the hope of healing. The seeds of sin and the hope of healing. First, let's look at the seeds of sin. The story is, um, is atrocious. David is home. He's not fighting with his men. He's not where he should be. He's home. He's relaxed. He's bored. He's by himself. He's tired. So he's taken a nap on his roof, and he's woken up, and he's walking along his rooftop. Now remember, King David, hasn't, the, the temple hasn't been built, so David's palace is the tallest and biggest, most prominent building in all Jerusalem. From his roof, he can look out over his whole city. And this particular night, as he's pacing back and forth and looking, he sees a woman, a beautiful woman, we read. And she's bathing. David sees her, and his heart is not satisfied with just looking. He wants to know who she is. He learns that this is uh, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. And although this is the first time we're introduced to these people, David knows who they are. Both Eliam and Uriah are part of David's mighty men. You remember when David was on the run from King Saul? He was exiled out into the cave on the run for his life. Dozens of men came to him and said, David, we will fight for you. We will defend your honor. We will give up our lives for you. Uriah gave up his life for David by being one of these mighty men. David owed him his own life, but he took his wife. David called for Bathsheba, sent men to her. David took her, brought her to himself. David slept with her and then sent her home. She soon realized she was pregnant and told David, now David's got to cover it up. So he calls Uriah home, says, Uriah, You've been gone so long. Why don't you take the night off? Go home. Go be with your wife. Wash your feet, which was a sexual innuendo. Go be with your wife. Uriah, what a man of integrity, especially in comparison to David. Uriah doesn't go home. He stays at the palace. He says, no, David, like the ark of the Lord and, and all of Israel and Judah, my, my lords are fighting out in the field. They're fighting your war for you. I'm not going to go home while my brothers in arms are far from their homes. I'm not going to do that. So David tries again, getting him drunk, thinking, hey, if he's drunk, then he's going to go home and be with his wife. But he doesn't. So David's got one last shot. He writes a letter to Joab, the general. It says, put Uriah at the front of the line and bring him to the toughest battle so that he might die. 
he writes this letter and then gives it to Uriah. Uriah carries his own death note to his commander. And then Uriah dies. Bathsheba mourns. And then she's taken into the palace to become David's wife. Coveting, stealing, adultery, lying, murder. That's what David did. He, he broke in this one episode half of the Ten Commandments. One after another. David did this. The great king of Israel. The one whom the Lord had called out and selected personally. The the man that God said, this man is a man after my own heart. He did this. David, the one who who brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to make worship of God the center of their lives. The one who wanted to make a temple in devotion and worship to God and his glory. David did this. David, the great psalm writer who, who wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The one who who wrote this in Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. I will meditate on your precepts and I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your commandments. I will never forget your words. He did this. What does that mean? Here's what this means. If David could do this, well, certainly we could do it too. The seeds of every sin are buried in every one of our hearts. If David is capable of doing this, so are you. This is the great king, David. No one knew God deeper than David did. I mean, I mean, David worshipped God more than you and I have ever worshipped God. He knew God's word deeper in his heart than any of us could ever imagine knowing his word. He was a better follower of God than you and I could ever be. And yet he did these things. And if he did them, well, then you and I and everyone we know is possible of doing the same thing. The best person you know, the most moral person you know, the most devout Christian you know is capable of failing like this. The seeds of every sin are buried in every heart. They're in your heart right now. They're in mine. If it can happen to David, it can happen to us. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Sarah and I watched the movie The Darkest Hour. 
which follows the first several weeks and months of um, Prime Minister Churchill's tenure uh, in World War II. And it's a really powerful, well-done movie. And we were commenting to one another as we were watching it how, how there's so many movies about World War II. Uh, it's become this sort of collective foundation and, and story that defines the Western world, this war. And so we go to it again and again and again. It defines us. Um, but rarely is there a movie uh, that highlights the atrocities that were taking place in Germany during the war. And, and in fact, actually at that time, I've just learned this recently, at that time that the Nazi regime was beginning to take Jews and put them in these concentration camps, as word got out that this was happening, almost everyone thought, no way. That has to be a rumor. And there's no way that that's happening. And actually, FDR is on record saying, these Germans are just like us. I mean, they look like us. They, they are productive like us. They're uh, entrepreneurial like us. They, they act like us. There's no way that someone like us could be doing something like that. Because the logic goes, if people like us are capable of doing something like that, well then, I'm capable of doing something like that. FDR didn't realize that the seed of every sin is in every heart. If it was in their heart, well then it must be in mine. Uh, did you check the news this morning? There was a shooting in Buffalo. Yeah, 10 people died. It seems like we can't go a week without hearing of another shooting. In Lindhurst, just last week, you're right. Yeah. So I found, I found this story from 2019 in California. A high school student brought a gun to school and, and shot and killed his classmates. And um, often in stories like that, uh, the reporting will go after the fact, and, and they'll talk to people that knew that person. And they'll ask, well, did you see any red flags? What was, what was he like as a kid? Well, in this particular instance in California, they asked people, and, and this is the kind of thing that they said about him. He was a quiet boy. He kept to himself, but he was always sweet and kind. Another student said he had actually helped me prepare and study for a college placement test. He was generous. Another pointed out that this child was a Boy Scout. He demonstrated upright character in his community. One person summarized the feelings and said, you just would never have suspected that someone like him would be capable of doing something like this. But the seeds of every sin are in the heart of every man. So what do we do if that's true? First, in, in general, 
And, and if you're not a Christian this morning, uh, this is really more directed to you or in your conversations with your non-Christian neighbors and friends. We need to stop thinking that the Bible is primarily about old saints that we look to for upright moral behavior to model our own lives after. That's the, I think that that's the general posture people have towards the Bible, that it is a, a, a long history of the saints of the faith who showed exemplary behavior and that we should open the Bible and learn from him and do just like that. That is not the primary purpose of the Bible. Because if you look at every one of those pillars of the faith, those heroes of the Bible, they are sinners. Abraham lied twice, two different times, about who his wife was, calling her his sister, so that his life would be spared, and she actually was maybe taken advantage of. Moses, leading the Israelites out in the wilderness, he, he got angry at God and grumbled against him and actually got irritated with God to such a degree that God said, Moses, you are not going to enter the promised land. We know Peter in the New Testament like denies knowing Jesus on the very night that he is betrayed put on trial, and then crucified. The Bible is not a book of heroes. It is a book of failures. So let's read it that way. It's not primarily a book for us to learn how to be better people. It is a book that shows us our own sin and our own failure and points us to the good news of grace. Because look, if, if the Bible is full of failures, well then the Bible also says there is grace for failures and there is grace for no one else. Are you a failure today? Did you walk in here feeling the guilt and shame of what you've done Hey, Jesus called us this morning here. Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. He says, hey, if you're a failure, come here, because I have grace for failures and for no one else. There is grace for us. Second, though, how do we respond to this truth that there's the seed of sin in every one of our hearts? We need to deal with that sin. You know the thing about seeds? They grow. Uh, when we're out on hikes, our daughter Julia loves to um, collect acorns, and she'll put them in her pocket and save them for later, and she'll do this without us knowing. So, like, we'll be doing laundry later that week and, like, pull out dozens of acorns from her pockets. And uh, I told them once that an acorn, that, that this little thing, if you plant this in the ground and give it enough water and time and sun, this little thing can grow 
into a giant tree. I mean, it seems unbelievable. This little thing could become so massive. And in fact, that tree then will produce hundreds and thousands of acorns, which will fall and germinate and grow more trees. So like from one acorn, there is the potential to cover the whole world in forest. Which is easier, stomping on an acorn or pulling down a tree or cutting down a forest? Let's deal with our sin now. Every little bit of it. Even the the quiet pet sins that we take comfort in in our heart that no one else knows about, that we look to for that fleeting joy. Deal with it now. I read a book in college from a a Puritan author called uh, The Mortification of Sin. And it's this whole book on this one phrase, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Friends, there's no third option. We are either fighting against our sin, opposing it and putting it to death, or it is fighting against you. It is growing inside of you, and it will kill you if we are not killing it. So let's be quick to stomp on the seed of sin in our heart, and let us find the grace of God for failures like us. That's point one. I'm glad it was just a two-pointer, not a three-pointer, because we're going long. Point two, there is hope for healing. In light of David's sin, God sends Nathan to David. And he sends him there to confront him on his sin. Remember, Nathan, he's a prophet of the Lord, so he speaks for the Lord. But he's also David's friend, his closest advisor and counselor. He's loyal to David. There's trust there. So David sends Nathan, sorry, God sends Nathan to David because God knows David will listen to Nathan. Something we need to know about ancient Israel at this time, and and for most of that region, um, they didn't have a, um, uh, a, their their government structure did not have three branches like we've got. They had one branch, the king. And, And the king set the laws in accordance with God's own law. The king executed the laws. And then the king was the final courtroom to decide matters regarding the law. And so often, people would come to King David as chief justice in the land and say, David, would you rule on this case? I'm going to present a situation before you. Would you give us justice? And Nathan has done this in times past with David. And so Nathan comes again with a case. He says, David, hey, I'm laying out for you a case. I need, I need some help. There's two men. There's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man, he's got abundant field of, of sheep. He's so rich. There's the poor man. He's got one little sheep, and it's dear to him. He, he, he raised it from a, a baby. He's brought it into his house. He's let this lamb eat with him at their table. She sleeps in his arms. She's one of the family. She's like a precious daughter to him. 
Now David, there's a traveler, and he comes to the rich man's house. And as was custom at the day, hospitality is huge. When a traveler comes, you prepare a feast. But the rich man says, no, not, not my sheep. So he goes and takes that lamb from the poor man, slaughters it, and gives it to his traveler. Now, David, what should I do? David's response was quick and fiery. His anger burned within him against this man, saying, As the Lord lives, this man must die. Now, according to the law of Moses, according to the law of the land, what this man had done was not a capital offense. Like taking a lamb was not worthy of death. David is, is so angry at this story. He's, he, his judgment is exaggerated. It's not an appropriate response. Why did David respond this way? One commentator, Robert Alter, in his book on David, he says, David's exaggerated response proves that David is guilty. He says, faced with his own guilt and the duty of being a man of justice and righteousness as the king, he is more than eager to bring about justice on behalf of another in order to clear his own sense of moral failure. In other words, David is faced with his own guilt and he is trying to swing that pendulum to the other side by overcompensating for his own failure. I think we do this. When we've done something wrong, whether against a friend or a loved one or even a stranger, we in turn become so, like, more than usually good. We, we, we sort of change our attitude and be the most nicest, most caring, most thoughtful person. We go out of our way to show abundant to them. And it is an attempt, whether we realize it or not, to justify ourselves, to cleanse our own conscience, to right the wrongs that we have done. Look, in the, in the Catholic Church, our, our neighbors, our friends, our Catholic friends and neighbors, when they go to their priest and confess their sin, the priest says, here is how you can absolve yourself. Here are the prayers you should pray. Here are the acts of penance that you should do. And it is, in a sense, a way to self-justify, to cleanse your own guilt. Look, but we non-Catholics do it too. We try to absolve ourselves through this compensatory justice and righteousness. Like David, when we are faced with our own sin, we hide behind this hard shell of self-righteousness. We put up a wall we get behind a barrier. But Nathan saw through it. Look how re he responds. You are the man. David knows, sorry, Nathan knows from David's response that David is guilty. He is the man who stole and took what did not belong to him. 
But I love the way that Nathan does this because it's a reflection of God's character when he pursues us to bring us back to himself. Because God could have sent Nathan and said, David, you are a murderer, you are an adulterer, you are a liar, you, you, you have covered this up, you are guilty. That would have been just fine. That would have been condemning. But God chooses to send Nathan not to condemn, but to convict him. Because it's conviction, not condemnation, that leads us to repentance and restoration. That is the pattern of God. Whenever there is a chance of repentance and restoration, God does not come with condemnation, but conviction. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But have you read John 3.17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him he might save the world. God's pattern with our sin is sending someone to convict us, lead us to repentance and restoration, not to condemn us. That is his desire. Like an ice cream cone dipped in chocolate, we put up this hard shell around our hearts. But the warmth and comforting heat of God's compassion convicts us and melts that away so that our hearts are softened and that we come back to him. That is God's concern for you he wants to lower that barrier and shield that you have put up of self-righteousness, saying, come to me just as you are, even if you're a failure, because there is grace for failures. There is hope for healing. We need to be more like Nathan. When we talk to one another in the church, our posture towards our non-Christian neighbors and friends and family. We need to be more like Nathan. Not coming quickly with a word of condemnation, but with the patience and warmth of conviction. Because it's through conviction that we lead people to repentance and restoration. It's easy for us to uh, get up on our high horses and look down with words of judgment and condemnation. But if it is true that the seeds of every sin are in every one of our hearts and there is no place for us to judge, we need to be like Nathan. But then we need to find some Nathans and surround ourselves with them. We need to get guys and girls, find them, bring them close to you, keep them close. Nathans that know your life, they know your struggles, they know your failures. Nathans that will speak truth in love to you. Nathans that will remind you of God's grace. Nathans that will lead you back to him. Do you have a Nathan in your life? We need to surround ourselves with Nathans. We didn't read this verse, but after Nathan confronts David, 
David responds in verse 13. He confesses his sin before the Lord. Nathan responds and says, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What, Nate, what David did was a capital offense. He deserved death. So how is it possible for Nathan to say to David, you shall not die? How is it possible for you and I to stand here today with the seeds of every sin in our heart, standing before him guilty in our sin? How is it possible for us to hear, you shall not die? Eugene Peterson in his commentary on this passage with Nathan, he points out something really fascinating. He says there's a parallel between this scene with Nathan and the scene of Jesus before Pilate on the day of his crucifixion. Both of them are courtrooms. David is there guilty on trial. Jesus is before Pilate on trial, but not guilty. Nathan says, you are the man. And Pilate says, behold the man. This story should point us to Jesus, who was willing to be condemned and put to death for our sin, our death-deserving sin, so that we could confess and turn to God and receive the life that we do not deserve. Because Jesus was willing to be condemned for you and lose his life. You and I, when we confess our sins, we will live. Let's pray.